For a number of weeks, we have been away from our study of the book of Romans, but this morning we return, so please uh, turn with me in the scriptures to Paul's letter to the Romans, and we come this morning to the 10th chapter. We have been dealing with verses in chapter 9 and chapter 10, which are not frequently studied. Some of them are difficult, and perhaps that is one of the reasons that they're not frequently studied. But this morning, we come to verses that are very well known. Even if a person, even if a Christian person doesn't know much of chapter 9 and chapter 10, almost all Christians are familiar with these verses that come before us this morning. Let me read them in Romans chapter 10, reading in verses 9 and 10. Because if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now that is the text that will occupy most of our time this morning, but in order to set the background for this text, and also to provide something of a review since it has been so long since we have been studying this section, I'd like to first remind you of the larger context and then to set the immediate context of those verses and then to spend most of our time on those two verses. You remember the larger context, chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11 are all devoted to the same theme. The Apostle Paul is writing in these chapters about God's relationship to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And also he is writing about the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles to one another. And the first issue that comes up in this section is what are we to make of this fact, of these two facts? Number one, this fact that the Jews as a nation, as a people, have been given great privileges. They are the covenant people of God Tremendous privileges have been given to them. Some of them are stated in chapter 9, verses 3 through 5. That's one fact. The other fact is that the nation as a whole, certainly not every individual person in the Jewish race, but the nation as a whole is apostate. The nation as a whole is hardened. The nation as a whole did not receive Jesus as Messiah. How can those two things be true? In the light of their great privileges and God's special relationship to them, how can they be in this place of hardness and apostasy and disbelief in Jesus as their Messiah? The Apostle Paul says several things in reference to that question. One of the things is that one of the things that he says is that God has always dealt with a remnant of the people of Israel. God has never dealt with every one of them in terms of saving every one of them. All that are of Israel are not Israel and so forth. A second thing that he says in reference to that question is that God is working with Jews and Gentiles according to his purposes in election, that he has an eternal purpose to save some, and those some he is saving. A third thing that he says is that the Jews when presented with the gospel of grace, the gift of righteousness through faith without works, they rejected that. They would not receive the gospel of grace through faith. They were determined to maintain that they could gain God's favor by doing things that pleased him. And because they chose that method of salvation and rejected the Lord Jesus, Now they find themselves in this state of general apostasy and hardness. Now that's the general context. That third point is what brings us immediately to our verses in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. The Jews' determination to hold on to a method of salvation which was based upon their good works and their refusal to accept God's method of salvation where grace was given through faith. Now, follow with me, please, to read in chapter 9, verse 30. Chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who followed not after righteousness attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel 
followed after a law of righteous following after a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law why because they sought it not by faith but as it were by works they stumbled at the stone of stumbling in reference to Jesus why were they in this position because they refused the gospel method of justification where righteousness was given through faith and they stumbled at Christ. They would not believe in Christ. Now pick it up again in chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my supplication to God is for them, that is for his brethren, the Jewish nation, my desire is for them that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone that believeth. There again in verse, in verse 3 is a statement of this same idea. Why is there apostasy among the nation? Because they were ignorant of the righteousness which God required, they sought to establish their own righteousness, and they would not subject themselves to the righteousness of God that was given through Christ. Now, in verse 5 and following, Paul carries on this, this theme, this concern. They chose salvation by works. They rejected salvation by grace through faith. And what he does in verses 5 and following, is he, he almost personifies these two methods of salvation. And he has salvation by works speak. And then he has salvation by grace through faith speak. And the statements of righteousness based upon works and the statement of righteousness based upon faith is thrust before the reader. Now let's look at this. Chapter 10, verse 5. Here you have salvation by works speaking. For Moses writes that the man that doeth the righteousness which is of the law shall live thereby. What does the righteousness which is of the law say? Simple. It says the one who does these things will live thereby. What are these things? All the requirements of the law. Very simple. This is all very simple. We've been in some heavy water, but what comes up today is all very simple. It's like Paul is determined to make things very simple at this point in the letter. What does this, this means of salvation say? It simply says, you do all the law and you'll have life. Very simple. Now, all the law is very broad. It refers to every aspect of life being lived in obedience to God. You remember the alls, all the law, all the time, with all the heart. Anybody that obeys all the law, with all the heart, all the time, will live. Now, no one can do that. The law was not given on the assumption that anyone could do that. The law was given to demonstrate that no one could be perfectly obedient to God, but nonetheless, that's what the law says. You do everything. You never lie. You never think about lying. You never murder. You never think angry thoughts. You never commit adultery. You never think lustful thoughts. All the law, all the heart, all the time. You'll go to heaven. You'll have, you'll have life. That's what, the, that's what salvation by work says. Now he says in verse 6 and following, but the righteousness which is of faith says this. And now having heard what the righteousness according to the law says, now he talks... Now he says what the gospel says. Salvation that is based upon the righteousness of Christ through faith. Now, it's interesting what he says. It says. It says three things. Let me give you a summary, and then we'll look at the text. Salvation by faith says, number one, that you are not called to do what is impossible or unknown. Number two, salvation by faith says you are called to do what is simple and clearly known. And number three, salvation by faith says you are called to confess and to believe. Now look at the verses. Verse six, salvation by faith says that you are not called to do what is impossible or unknown. Look at verse six. But the righteousness which is of faith says this, 
Say not in your heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who shall descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. All right? Number one, salvation by grace says this. Don't let anyone think that you've got to go up into heaven and get a savior and bring him down. Don't let anyone think that you've got to go down into the abyss, go down into death, go down into the place of the dead and bring Christ up so that you'll have a savior. Now, the commentators say that what Paul is doing is he is using a Jewish idiom that to go up to heaven or to cross the sea or to go into the depths was a Jewish idiom of something that was simply impossible. Just not impossible. If you want to say something's impossible, you say it's just like going to heaven and coming back. Or it's just like crossing the sea, walking on water. And it might, be, it might be that this is an idiom which would be similar to our idiom, well, you can't walk on water, meaning that it's just something that's impossible to be done. Well, notice Paul's simple point. That's a confusing statement because we don't think in Jewish idioms. But if you know the Jewish idiom, it's a very simple point. He's saying salvation by faith does not ask you to do what's impossible. Salvation by faith does not say you've got to go to heaven and get yourself a savior or you've got to go to the depths and bring up this dead savior. Salvation by grace doesn't ask you to do what's impossible. Salvation by works does. Salvation by works asks you and demands of you to do what's absolutely impossible, to be free of all sin, to think pure thoughts, to never tell lies, to never be angry. Salvation by works asks what's impossible. But salvation by faith says, think not. Don't ask yourself who can, go to, can do these impossible things. The second thing that salvation by faith says is that you are called to do what is simple and clearly known. I'm going to read verse 6 again just to keep the flow of thought. But the righteousness which is of faith saith thus, Say not in your heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who shall descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee. It is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. What's he saying? Salvation by faith says, don't think about doing the impossible. It says, do that which is close to you. Do that which is near to you, which is in your mouth, in your heart, something that's accessible to you, something that's very close to you, something that is not difficult to grasp. Salvation by faith doesn't ask you to do something which is esoteric. Salvation by faith doesn't ask you to, to be one of the initiate, one of the elite, one of the special few that can understand this difficult gospel and thus with your peculiar and unusual understanding enter into heaven. It's not like that. Salvation by faith says don't try to do the impossible. Salvation by faith says you're called to do what is near to you, what is accessible to you, what is known to you. It's even in your mouth. And then he identifies very specifically what salvation by faith calls you to do. It calls you to the word which we preach. And now he explains that. Two things that you must do. You don't try to do what's impossible. You do do, which is accessible and near and available to you. Specifically, you confess that Jesus is Lord and you believe that God has raised him from the dead. That's what salvation by grace through faith says. Salvation by works says you must do all these details you must be perfect in conduct and perfect in mind and perfect in motive every moment of your existence and you'll get into heaven. Salvation by grace through faith says you're not asked to do something impossible. You're asked to do what is accessible to you, what is close to you, what you're able to do. You're asked to do specifically this. Confess and believe. Now, I'd like to spend the rest of our time looking at those two prerequisites for salvation. Those two requirements is a better word for salvation. Two necessities for salvation. The first is that we must confess Jesus as Lord. I'd like to deal with three things under that heading. In the first place, we must confess Jesus as Lord. In the first place, I'd like us to understand what it is to confess. What is the definition of confession? 
It's vitally important that we understand this. If this is one of the things that's necessary for someone to get to heaven, we, we need to understand what it is. The word that is translated confession literally means to speak the same thing or simply to agree. To confess something in one sense is for two people simply to say the same thing, to be in agreement. But the word in the, in the ancient Greek world was often used as a legal term, a judicial term. And in that setting, the word would indicate a binding public declaration which settles a relationship with a legal force. We have lots of illustrations of that kind of thing. A modern wedding ceremony is like that. In a modern wedding ceremony, there are public statements of commitment made to one another. And those public commitments, those public statements, along with the legal documents, become binding in a court of law. There's a binding relationship, a judicial legal relationship that is established by that public confession of mutual intention and commitment. We used to say in a more honest time that my word is my bond. Well, what was meant by that? It was meant by that that if I make a statement with my mouth in public as to my intention, that's a binding statement. Well, that idea is in this word. To confess with the mouth has that judicial legal sense to it. My word is my bond. I make a public commitment. It is fast and secure. That's the idea that is being set forth here. What must one do to be a Christian? What is required by this gospel method of salvation by grace? Well, we must make a bond. We must make a public, irrevocable statement, commitment of something to God. Now, please look in the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6 where this word is used again and perhaps and probably with the same connotation. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But thou, O man of God, referring to Timothy, the young minister, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Lay hold on the life eternal whereunto thou wast called. And didst confess the good confession in the sight of many witnesses, I charge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. Now, in reference to Christ Jesus, Paul says, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed the good confession. Now, he's saying Jesus made a confession, the good confession. And Paul is saying that Timothy also made the good confession. Now, we know what Jesus said before Pontius Pilate. He was asked if he was the Son of God, and he assented to that. He made the good confession. He made the public statement, this is true, I'm committed to this truth, it's so. Timothy made a public confession. Timothy made a confession of his allegiance to Christ. And Paul in this place is calling Timothy to be faithful to that public confession. Some people believe this refers to Timothy's baptism. It may. It doesn't say that. Baptism is, in fact, a public confession of faith. Baptism is, in fact, a rite, a ceremony ordained by God, whereby the, the person being baptized makes public to all. I confess Jesus as my Lord. I accept the name of the triune God over me. I am committed to a life of obedience to God and death to my own ways. The public commitment, the public confession of faith. It may be that Paul is referring to Timothy's baptism. It doesn't say that, so we, we may not just force that into the passage. It may be that Paul is simply referring to the, the frequent public, public statements that Timothy had made by way of committing himself to Christ. But the point is that that confession, which was made public, was binding. And Paul is bringing him back to it. Timothy, be faithful to that good confession, that confession that you made, like Jesus made, before many witnesses. 
So much then for a definition of this confession. Now in the second place, I'd like you to look at the focus of this confession. What are you supposed to confess? What are you supposed to adhere to publicly, commit yourself to publicly? Well, you are to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now that is a statement that is full of the greatest implications. And I believe that it would not be for edification for us to divert into a multi-week series of sermons on what it is for Jesus to be our Lord. But there are just a few things, that, the obvious things that I would like to say here. A prerequisite, a requirement for salvation is that anyone who would be saved make the public bond, make the public association of himself to this truth. Jesus is Lord. And whatever else it may mean, and it means many more things that I'm going to say, whatever else it may mean, it means these two things. It means in the first place that the person who would be a Christian, who would have salvation by grace, is saying, I believe that Jesus is the universal Lord with all authority over all things, who has absolute right and control over everything that exists. Now that is clearly a biblical teaching. We'll not take the time now to explore that but it is clearly a biblical teaching. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the Son, who is presently raised at the right hand of the glory of God, ruling over all things, ruling all things until he has finally defeated the last enemy death and gives over his kingdom to his Father. Jesus is Lord of all things. The second thing that it has to mean is that if one would be a Christian, he must publicly commit himself irrevocably and with binding intention to the fact that Jesus specifically is Lord over him. Not merely Lord over the whole creation, but Lord over him. It is required of anyone that would be a Christian that publicly and truly The statement is made, Jesus is my master. I am the servant. I am the disciple. I publicly repudiate any claims to my own life, to my own intentions, my own desires. I am the servant. Jesus is the Lord. And I willingly accept his rule over every area of my life. And of course, the consequence of such a statement is that the person who would be a Christian lives the rest of his days trying to work out the implications of Jesus ruling every minute and every issue in his life. That's a prerequisite to salvation. Now this is a willful, voluntary acceptance of this relationship that Jesus is Lord and I am the disciple. It is a voluntary, willful, and by willful I mean it engages the will. It is a statement of will. It is a statement of submission. It is a statement of determination. I will obey Jesus as Lord. Now this is consistent with all of the scriptures, that this is a requirement. It is a necessary requirement of all who would have salvation through faith. Some people have tried to muddy the waters by saying that if you say this, then you no longer have salvation by grace. Now you have salvation based upon whether or not you'll be obedient. That's foolish. That's foolish. It's an insult to anyone who seriously takes the Bible. The scriptures clearly say, and we clearly affirm, it is impossible to earn salvation. It is impossible to be so devoted to Jesus and so submissive to his lordship that you somehow gain God's favor, it is impossible. It is foolish to contemplate. But it is true, and it is clearly stated in the Bible, that if anyone would be a Christian, grace is through faith. Grace is unmerited and unearned. But it comes in the context of an absolute surrender to Jesus in all things. Just quickly look with me at some of these texts which state this idea very quickly in only a couple. 
Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. Paul is speaking of his own ministry and how he commends himself to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And he says in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled in them that perish, verse 4, in whom the God of this world, referring to Satan, hath blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn upon them. Verse 5. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's a summary of apostolic teaching. It's a summary of all of Paul's ministry. Every place he went, he made himself the servant of those to whom he spoke, but he preached Jesus as Lord. He did not preach Jesus as Savior and not Lord. Of course he preached Jesus as Savior, absolutely. But he preached him as a saving Lord. And wherever someone became a Christian, they became a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another passage is in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. You know the passage. You who have attended this place for a few years perhaps would say this passage is referred to more than any other in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus invites all needy people unto himself. He says in verse 28 of chapter 11, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And now he gives a requirement. You must come. I'll receive you. I'll give you rest. I'll forgive your sins. I'll cleanse your life. I'll change your disposition. Come to me. I'll receive you. Three things. Come to me. The next thing he says is, take my yoke upon you. And the third thing he says is, learn of me. He doesn't only say, come to me. Just come to me. Just confess your sins and I'll forgive you. He doesn't say that. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. You remember what that means. The yoke is an instrument of service. An oxen has a yoke put on its shoulders when it becomes the servant of its owner. Human beings even wear, wear yokes upon their shoulders when they're committed to work, to service. They have the yoke on their shoulder in the Orient and they, with those yokes on their shoulder, will have ropes attached to heavy burdens and carry them along. To have a yoke upon you is to demonstrate that you're in submission, you're in, you're in the context of labor to he who has authority over you. That's what Jesus says. He was preached as Lord. He preached himself as Lord. You want rest to your soul? Oh, come. But don't come with naked shoulders. Come with a my yoke on your shoulders because you must be obedient to me. Look again in Matthew in chapter 28. Passage that should be in our minds in reference to the baptism this evening. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus came to them. This is after his resurrection. Jesus came to them and spoke unto them, saying, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. What is the commission that the apostles are given? They are not told to go into the earth and to preach the gospel and make everybody believers. Of course they are to make people believers. But the commission is they are to make people disciples. The duty is that they are to press upon everyone who hears their preaching that they must be obedient to everything that Jesus has ever taught. Go, baptize the nations, discipling them, teaching them to observe everything everything that I've commanded you. Jesus is Lord. He is to be preached as Lord. Paul preached him as Lord. Jesus required the apostles to preach him as Lord. When Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that salvation by faith says that we must confess Jesus as Lord, he is only saying what is said all throughout the scriptures. 
And I would like you to look at one other passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, which brings us to the third thing concerning the confession. We've looked at the definition of the confession. We've looked at the focus of the confession, that we must confess Jesus as Lord. And now number three, I would like you to notice the public nature of this confession. We are to confess him, Paul says in Romans 10, with the mouth. We are to confess Jesus before men. This is not something that takes place in the private arena of the soul. Look at this passage in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus, from verse 24 through verse 39, is teaching his disciples that if they are his disciples, they will be like him. And one of the ways in which they will be like him is that they will suffer all manner of persecution and opposition. And in the midst of informing them that it will be tough to be his disciple, he says this in verse 32. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is very clear and very plain. Only those people who will make their public allegiance to him, only those people who will be bold enough and have the spirit of courage to be willing to stand up in the face of whatever the opposition may be. This is in the context of expected opposition. Only those who in difficulty will openly confess me, openly align themselves with me, openly say, Jesus is my Lord, only such, he says, will I confess. What a, that has a threat to it, but it also has... And, it, and, the, and the balance of our, of our sense to that, of our response to that should not be the threat. He's saying this as an affirmation to these disciples. They may all oppose you. Parents may forsake you. You may even be killed and dragged before persecutors, he says. But if you confess me before them, I will confess you before my Father. You commit yourself to me before men, I will commit myself to you. Before my Father, no one who has Christ committed to them in the last day before God will enter into hell. But the point is, this confession, which Paul requires in Romans chapter 10, and which Jesus speaks of here, is public. I said earlier that it, it could refer to baptism, but it must not be limited to baptism. It is interesting if you turn back to Romans chapter 9, and I would not like us to make too large of a point out of this, but it, I would like to note it for you. In Romans chapter 10, rather, in verse 9, the word that is translated to confess is in the aorist tense in the Greek language. And what that means is it is a tense in the Greek language which refers to an event that happens once at a point of time. In the next verse... The word to confess is in the present tense, which refers to an action that takes place continually without reference to any single point of time. And again, it ought not to be overstressed, but it may be that Paul's intention is to draw attention to this. Jesus Christ must be confessed as Lord at a point in time. There must come a point where before which you did not publicly own the Lord Jesus. But there came a point somewhere. You may have been converted long before. You may have been drawn long before. God may have been working with you long before. There may have been belief long before. But there must come a point in time where a public, demonstrable confession of Jesus as Lord is made. And if it is done in sincerity, it will express itself in verse 10's tense. It will express itself in an ongoing way but it's public at its beginning and it's public in its ongoing. It is not something that is limited to the arena, the private arena of the soul. All right, two requisites, two things necessary to be saved by grace. 
Number one, this confession of Jesus as Lord. Now look at the second. The second thing that is necessary is that we must believe that God has raised him from the dead. Again, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Let's follow the same outline. First, the definition of what it means to believe. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? There's an old formula. Some of, most, many of you may be familiar with this. It was written long ago. And it's a very helpful way to understand faith. What is, what is saving faith? It's not like faith that the chair you're sitting in is going to hold you up. It's not like that. It's not like faith that the principles of gravity are going to keep working and we can depend upon them tomorrow. What is saving faith? Well, saving faith has these three elements. Saving faith, in the first place, is to know or to understand something. To have saving faith in Jesus is to know, to understand about him, to know, to understand about the gospel. But that doesn't save anyone. That's only the first element. There are lots of heretics who know and understand true things about Jesus. The second thing that's necessary if there is to be saving faith is there must be an acceptance that these things are actually true, not merely to understand them, but to say, yes, they're true. I believe them to be true. But the third, and no doubt the most important aspect of saving faith, there must be more than understanding. There must be more than acceptance that they're true. In the third place, there must be trust. There must be the sense that these things are true, and I base my soul salvation on them. I base my hope of eternal life on these things, where they are trusted with all of the soul. So basically, that's what it means to believe, not just to know not just to agree, but to trust in them and to throw your soul's hope of everlasting life upon the gospel. So much for the definition of faith. Look now in the second place at the focus of faith. What are you supposed to believe? Paul is very specific in this place. There are some places where you're just told to believe. But in this place, Paul says something very specific must be the focus of your faith. He says, you must believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. We must believe in the fact of the resurrection as set forth in the Bible. And we must believe in the interpretation of the resurrection as set forth in the Bible. There are lots of people who believe in resurrections. And there are lots of people who believe that a man named Jesus who lived once in Nazareth died and was raised from the dead just like the zombies in Haiti. That doesn't save anyone. If we're to be saved, we must believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. We must believe in the resurrection, and we must believe in the interpretation of the resurrection, which is given in the Bible. Now, there are many implications. What is, it? What is this to believe that God has raised him from the dead? Well, very quickly, it means that we believe in a supernatural God. It means that we believe in a supernatural God who is very present in all the events of history. We are not deists. We do not believe in a God who is separate from the creation, but rather a God who works powerfully and wonderfully in the midst of the creation. It means, in the second place, that we accept, because we believe that God has raised him from the dead, in the second place, we accept that God has made him to be both Messiah and declared him to be God, the Son. When Peter preaches that first sermon, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, he says that on the basis of the resurrection, we are to know decidedly that God has set him forth to be both Lord and Christ. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 2, he says that by virtue of the resurrection, God has declared him to be Son of God with power. We believe in the resurrection. We believe that Jesus is Messiah. We believe that he is God. We believe that he is in the place of greatest authority. That's what it is to believe that God has raised him from the dead. It means in the third place, if we believe that Jesus, God has raised him from the dead, it means by implication that we believe confidently that we too will be raised from the dead. That's part of the biblical interpretation of the resurrection. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so we too will be raised up to newness of life in heaven with him. It means that we believe that Jesus is coming again to judge the world. Paul says that's one of the reasons for the resurrection was to demonstrate 
without any possibility of argument that God would, in fact, judge the world by Jesus, whom he had raised from the dead. If we believe that God has raised him from the dead, it means that we believe that all of Jesus' claims have been vindicated, that everything that he says is true. And if we believe that God has raised him from the dead, it means that we believe in his present ministries of being our advocate, of being our mediator, of giving us succor, of being our intercessor. To say that we are to believe that God has raised him from the dead is not to say that we ascribe to the Apostles' Creed. To say that we believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead by God the Father is to say these things and much more. It is a mighty thing to be able to believe in the heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. We've looked at the definition of faith. We've looked at the focus of faith. And now finally, just briefly notice the private nature of faith. It is with the heart. The confession was public in the arena of the rough and tumble of the world. Faith is something that exhibits itself in the private spheres of the soul. It says that we confess with the mouth, but we believe with the heart or in the heart. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's not meant to be a difficult idea. It means these things. To believe in the heart, the heart refers to the whole inner person with our mind, with our feelings, with our will, with the inner person. Not just that we wrote something down on a paper, not that just that we said something, but the whole inner person is really committed to this. And only God perhaps can make us understand the difference. You know, lots of people say they believe something or say they will do something and they, and they just sign their name to a paper because they have to publicly declare something. But inwardly, they don't believe it at all. Well, that's, that's part of what's intended here. Faith is something that is, is not just something stated with the hand or, or with the mouth. It's something that inwardly is really there. The second implication of that, of course, is that it means that it refers to something which is sincere. In the heart is something that is real in there, sincere. But the third Im implication of, of this believing with the heart is to draw attention to the emotional aspect of our nature. Now, the, the heart refers to the whole inner person. But there are other words also that refer to the whole inner person, such as the mind or the soul. To say that we believe in the heart is to refer to the inner person, especially emphasizing the place of emotions, the place of affections. To believe that Jesus, that God has raised Jesus from the dead in the heart is to have an emotive, affectionate commitment to what we're believing. It is to so truly and sincerely believe these things that it creates an emotive response of gratitude and praise and awe. That's what it is to believe in the heart. People believe in the mind and they're never moved in the seat of their affections. But that which is a necessary part of the requirements of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith is the whole inner person and especially the affections are expressive of faith that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Well, what are the two, rec two requirements of the gospel method of salvation? Number one, confession that Jesus is Lord, public and open. Number two, earnest and sincere faith that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Now, I have just a few very simple things that I would like to say in closing about the implications of this passage for us. The first is that according to the scriptures, obedience is a test of the sincerity of faith. I would like to address the practical issue. You're sitting here perhaps, you have questions about the state of your soul. You look at yourself and you say, well, I, I, I confess, I've said to people, that Jesus is my Lord. I believe all of those things. And yet there's doubt in your mind. I'd like to address that doubt. One of the 
primary ways of establishing the sincerity of someone's confession of faith, confession and faith, is obedience. Now look, please, at a passage, again, that is well known, Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's that familiar passage where Jesus is referring to the day of judgment when men stand before him and he judges them. And it says in chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, that is, not everyone who calls me their Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy by thy name, and by thy name cast out demons, and by thy name do many mighty works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Now look at this situation that Jesus is envisioning. Here you have people who confess Jesus as Lord. They call him Lord. They do works in his name. In Jesus' name they perform miracles. In Jesus' name, they cast out demons. In Jesus' name, they prophesy or preach. And they come to Jesus, and they're bold enough to say, Lord, Lord. They confess Jesus as Lord. There is enough sincerity in that confession that they engage themselves with some measure of zeal in religious works. Yet Jesus casts them off. You say, how can that be? Paul says, if you confess Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart, didn't these folks confess? Surely they must have believed something. Well, whatever questions you may have, you have to come down to this. Jesus threw them out. And he says the reason he threw them out in the, in the first verse that we read, verse 21, is because though they called him Lord and confessed him Lord, did all this stuff, they did not obey the will of my Father who is in heaven. Obedience was the test of the sincerity of their confession. If you're looking at your lives and you don't see reality in them and you're questioning, am I serious or not? Is this false or not? One of the things you have to look at is, is my supposed confession and is my supposed faith leading me to this kind of obedience? Or is it only leading me to words and religious activities? Religious activities are very easy, and they appeal to the flesh. It'd be great to be out there prophesying in Jesus' name. It'd be great to be doing the miracles and people coming up to you and say, Oh, boy, you are full of faith. You are the instrument of the Lord. It's a real ego trip to be involved in preaching in public Christian ministries for some. And some people have derived many strokes to their ego by their public words about Jesus and by their zealous activity in Christian things. That is not an evidence of sincerity. An evidence of sincerity of confession and faith is in whether or not in the private as well as public details of life at every point the person says, the will of my Father is what I will do. So let's not turn to this passage in Romans 10 and say, oh, this is great. Anybody that just says Jesus' name and anybody who has some belief in his heart, they're surely Christians, because after all, we believe in the gospel of faith, the gospel of grace. We do believe in the gospel of grace. It's so great, the gospel of grace, that it transforms people. It transforms people so they become obedient from the heart. Second implication that I would like to draw from this passage is another obvious one, and that is that no one will be saved by secret faith. No one will be saved by secret faith. There are many illustrations, probably comes to your mind quickly as it, as it does to mine. There are many illustrations of people who think their secret faith will save them. You have people in the public eye who say that faith is a private matter. They say that their faith is something that is private to them. It's a matter of the soul. It's something that takes place in their closet. It's something they can't speak about and they will not be asked about and they will not live in accordance with. Faith is a private matter. You have politicians and artists and sports figures who say that all the time. Faith is a private matter. Can't influence my public policy as a governor or president or whatever because faith is a private matter. You have others such as people who live in very difficult circumstances. The true story, a man that 
that was in the Air Force in Turkey, witness to a man in Turkey over a prolonged period of time. He was committed to Islam. The man said that he believed and became a Christian, but nobody could know. Because it's illegal to be a convert from Islam to Christianity in Turkey, he would not bear the reproach of that. He was not willing to lose his job. He was not willing to suffer. The he would not, it had to be quiet. That man is not going to heaven as long as he has a mere secret faith. When I was a, a high school student, I had learned the gospel from my grandmother as a child. I did not disagree with it. I did not live it, but I did not disagree with it. When I went to college, I was converted. I look back on those days in high school, and I used to tell people that I was in the Lord's secret service in those days. And the reason I would say that was because I believed in those days. I was not any more converted than a doornail. But I did believe those things. And so I said I was in the Lord's secret service. I was lost. Secret faith, secret believing doesn't save. If we would be saved, there must be confession with the mouth. He, Jesus must be owned before men. There must be public vows and public commitments and public declarations of a binding, irrevocable, steadfast resolution to be given up to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Private faith will not save anyone. Jesus said, If you will deny me before men, I will deny you. Look, please, at one illustration in the Bible of this very thing. In John chapter 12, Jesus is summarizing his own ministry and the response of the Jews to his ministry. And he refers to how many of them would not believe. And then he makes this statement in John chapter 12 and verse 42 in reference to the religious rulers and the leaders of the people. He says in verse 42, Nevertheless, even of the rulers, many believed on him, but... What a contradiction. Many of the rulers believed on him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that is of men more than the glory that is of God. Does it happen that men believe but will not make an open confession? Absolutely. And what is the reason? It is because those men are more concerned with their relationship to their peers and the approval of men than they are with the approval of God. And being unwilling to suffer the embarrassment that an open, an open connection with Christ would bring them, being unwilling to suffer that, loving the glory of men more than the glory of God, they believed but would not confess. Jesus said, you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. Paul said, if we would be partakers of the gospel of grace through faith, that we must confess him as Lord with our mouth. There must be a public avowal. Jesus is my Lord. I think the implications of this are very close to some in this room. And I say this not, I hope there's no edge in my voice because I mean there to be no edge in my voice. But I speak to some of you that are teenagers. Some of you who do believe. You do not say, I refuse to believe that stuff. You do believe. And there are many things that are so virtuous and good about several of you. And there are some things that make some people hope even that you're Christians. Don't mistake this. Secret faith does not save. If you are a Christian, if you want to be a partaker of the gospel of grace, it is required of you that you publicly confess, Jesus is my Lord. It is required of you that you be baptized. It is the commandment of God to believe and to be baptized. It is required of you that you would say to everyone who would see in that baptismal ceremony, I am dead to the old way of life. I am raised up alive unto God. Jesus is my Lord. Make no mistake, I am publicly committed to him. There must be a conduct in the high school or in the college, not a placard on your chest or a sticker on your notebook or on the bumper of your car, 
but there must be a declaration in the practical circumstances of the classroom, Jesus is my Lord. There are certain movies I will not go to because Jesus is my Lord. There are certain clothes I will not wear because Jesus is my Lord. There are certain things I will not do because Jesus is my Lord. There are certain things I love to do because Jesus is my Lord. Secret faith will not save. There must be the belief in the heart that bursts forth in the confession with the lips that Jesus is Lord. And there are adults here who are in the same situation. If you were pinned in the corner, you would say, I do believe those things. But there's the absence of the confession. There's the absence of the public alignment. I will obey Christ. He is my Lord. Secret faith will not save. The third implication of this passage is that no one has any excuse to not be saved. You are not asked. You are not told. Go up to heaven and get yourself a savior and drag Christ down. You are not told to go into the depths and bring up this dead savior so you'll have a living savior. You're not asked to do anything impossible. You're not asked to obey the law. You're not asked to do something that is hard to understand. You're not asked to do anything like that. You're asked to do that which is right under your nose, to use a modern idiom instead of the one Paul used. You're asked to do something that's near to you. It's in your mouth. It's right before you. It's under your nose. It's easy. It's clearly understood. You're not asked to engage in some kind of a secret ritual that you may never be able to comprehend and thus never be able to enter into. There's no excuse for anyone not to be saved because the gospel is clear. It's simple. It's right before you. It's at your fingertips. You can have it. No excuse for any of you not to be saved. Don't go away. Don't go away and say the requirements are too high or say, I don't know if I'm elect or say this or say, no, no excuses. It's very clear. It's very simple. It's right before your face, right under your nose. You're called to confess Jesus as Lord. And you're called to believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And the scriptures promise that if you'll do that, you'll be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. Your life will be transformed. You will be made new in Christ. Do not go away from this place thinking, I cannot have this. It is before your face. You can have Jesus this day if you would take him as Lord and believe in your heart in the resurrection of the dead. Well, a fourth implication would be the implications of this for evangelism will let them pass. <coughs> but may it be pleased to stir us up, you who are lost, to stir you up to hope, you who are saved, to reaffirm publicly that Jesus is your Lord. Let us stand and pray and be dismissed. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you have given us the gospel. We thank you that in your wisdom that you gave us your law, that we would know what righteousness is, that we would know our inabilities to please you. And we thank you, O Lord, that you have given us the gospel that apart from the law, that we can be accepted in the Lord Jesus and on the basis of his obedience. We thank you that your gospel is so simple. And we admit that there are many things hard to understand, but we thank you for the basic simplicity of the gospel itself. Many of us here, with shame for our inconsistencies, but with sincerity nonetheless, can say to you that by thy grace, by the work of your spirit, that we do openly confess you, Jesus, as our Lord. And we do truly believe in our hearts that you, our Father, have raised him from the dead. We pray that you would help us who are your people to be more quick and determined to publicly own you. And we pray for those who are not your people that you would this day take them, give them faith, fill them with resolve to own you, and that they would this day be saved. We pray for these six who are to be baptized this, this afternoon. We pray that as they make this confession of their faith, that you would fill them with a holy zeal, a holy boldness, to always be faithful 
to the vows which, in a sense, they take upon themselves this afternoon. We pray that as several of them give public words of testimony of your grace to them, we pray that you would give them much help to honor you, and that the words that they choose and the countenance of their face would communicate praise and glory to you, and that all who attend would be amazed and thankful for your grace and the salvation of men and women. Please bless those meetings this afternoon. We pray that you would gather us together tonight under your blessing, that you would sanctify this day to our good. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.